Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show all about workers' rights and social justice. Stick Together is produced on 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast to you around the country on Community Radio Network. I'm Denis Rogatyuk. My fellow workers, socialists, revolutionaries and just generally the human beings of Australia, the moment we've all been waiting for has arrived. Tony Abbott, the scourge of onions, suppository of wisdom, overlord of shoot fronts, and public enemy number one of the Australian working class, is gone. To replace him, we have Malcolm Turnbull, one of the richest sitting members of Parliament, with a total worth of over $186 million, and a long career in such worker-friendly organizations as Goldman Sachs. The new boss, just like the old boss, remains the arch enemy of the labor movement in this country. So far incorporating into his agenda all of his predecessors' major policies, including those on climate change and same-sex marriage. In order to discuss this new appointment, we'll be joined shortly by one of our regular guests, Godfrey Moles. But before that, I'd like to give a brief rundown of our program today. Following our discussion about the change in liberal leadership, we'll briefly touch upon the ongoing dispute between the Real Tram and Bus Union and Yarra Trams. Furthermore, we will discuss the recent revelations of mass exploitation of workers at 7-Eleven stores around the country. Joining us then will be Anthony Main, the General Secretary of Unite, and, which is an independent fast food retail workers union, which has been active in the last few years in unionizing and organizing workers within the 7-Eleven franchise. Joining us now is one of our more regular guests, Godfrey Moores, the Assistant Se- Se- General Secretary of the National Union of Workers. Godfrey, welcome back to Stick Together. Ah, uh, thanks for having me, Dennis. Ah, uh, well, it's fantastic to have you here on such a glorious morning. Uh, now, if I recall, um, uh, last year, last year on one of our programs, you made a uh, a prediction that Tony Abbott wasn't going to last until Christmas 2014. But your prediction came a bit uh, late by about uh, 12 months, but nevertheless very true. So yeah. in the so in the end, you as a union, union leader, what do you think really contributed to Tony's Abbott demise in the end? Well, I think it was the fact that he was just so out of step with the Australian people. He was the man who had the misfortune to be born in the wrong generation. Um, and he couldn't rally enough support, and in the end it was the news calls that, um, that killed him. Well, but uh, uh, would, you, uh, would, you, would you also say that uh, certainly the social movements that, um, that have been uh, waging in Australia for the last, well, in the last two years, so it's just, you know, bust the budget, wear union, all those movements, do you think that, that, was, that was also a contribution to, uh, in, in the end to what, what happened? Well, I think that the news polls uh, and the various other polls were indicative of a feeling of anger with the status quo, that more and more people don't feel like the economy is working for them, but they have to work for the economy. Um, And bust the budget, march in march, um, we are union campaign, all of those ended up contributing uh, to the downfall of of Tony Abbott. But um, one, one man torn down, but... What Tony Abbott's demise, I think, teaches us is that we need to go beyond just saying no to what the Liberal Party and big business want to do for this country, and we have to move to saying yes to a meaningful alternative. Not yes to just some half-baked version of what the Liberals are doing, but yes to a new economic order. 
Mm. And uh, <clears throat> this was this is certainly going to be just as relevant with uh, the new leader of the Liberal Party, Mr. Malcolm Turnbull, or as um, you know we we are now calling him on, on Stick Together, Mr. One Hundred and Eighty Six Million Dollars. Yes. Uh, so uh, this uh, sort of almost typical representation of a rich white male leading the uh, leading the leadership of a party dominated by rich white males. What? Well, um, the headline for the front page of the MT News this morning was "Rich Dude Becomes PM." <laughs> uh, well, finally, mainstream media gets it right. So, uh, so Godfrey, what do you, what what do you think should really be our tactics uh, with Turnbull? Because he has kind of been um, he's kind of been uh, promoted as this sort of smooth salesman for the Liberal Party cause, yet his policies are com- almost completely identical to that of Abbott. Well, let's. Um you know, I was initially very pessimistic about what Turnbull's ascension to the Liberal Party might mean, uh, leadership might mean for the next election. However, um, you know, it's an open question as to whether or not Turnbull can lead the Liberals into a second term. Uh, he's going to have a very difficult time of it. He's going to have a very difficult time of it. Mm, mm. The first reason I think he's going to have a difficult time of it is because of the instability within the Liberal Party. Um, a lot of people, despite how bad Abbott was going, still voted for him. A lot of people in the Liberal Party, a lot of politicians, they don't, still don't want to have Turnbull as leader. Mm. Um, and I think that's problematic for Turnbull. And I, I feel that he's in a situation where he will have to kowtow to the Liberal Party right on marriage equality and climate change. Mm-hmm. So what we'll essentially have is a leader espousing much the same policies as Tony Abbott, but without any of the genuine conviction behind it. And I think uh, that lack of authenticity the Australian people will pick up on. And um, we, also, we, of course, have this uh, very important Canning by-election happening in the, last, in the next uh, few days. So what do you think the impact might be uh, over there in Western Australia? It's hard to tell because the situation is so fluid. It could really bounce around anywhere. There could be a honeymoon bounce in Canning. It might be a people saying a pox on all your houses. I can't believe you've done this. So it's hard to tell where that's going to go next week at Canning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think that Turnbull is going to be undermined from day one by the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not going to be an easy ride for him. That being said, Labor needs to go beyond not being happy. Um, that was the electoral strategy. We are not Tony Abbott. That electoral strategy is over, and it needs to be a new vision. Of course. Um, but what do you feel like um, some of the main things that really need to need to change in order for all Labour to become a, a proper alternative to uh, liberals, rather than just saying we're not liberals? Well, um, I think it's kind of meaningful that within 48 hours of Abbott being proposed leader, before then, uh, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, was elected Labor leader in the UK. Mm, absolutely. Um, in a turnout of hundreds of thousands of people joining the Labor Party, the Labor Party in the UK now has 325,000 members. That is, I know they have a larger population, but even still proportionally much larger than the Labor Party membership in this country. So it's interesting. I think that Labor... People need to feel like there's an authentic, genuinely believed vision of a, of a, of a different way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think the electoral strategy of just relying on a base to be there and then shifting your slide ruler along to the right until you've hit the magic point and therefore getting elected, that was maybe working in the 80s or 90s, but that does not work anymore. Things are a lot more fluid. Mm. So they're really, I think the main thing is, if anyone tells you for sure that they know what's going to happen next or they know what the new rules of the game are, then they're probably a fool because mm. the rules have changed and it's hard to work out what they are now. Yes. Well, uh, actually, speaking, uh, picking up on the on the sort of the, the the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, I guess one of the one of the key elements in why he was so successful in the end is because he had the social movements behind him. He had behind him, he had behind him, you know, the People's Assembly, the the anti the trade unions, the anti the you know the anti-fascist uh, coalitions, the anti-war. Uh, coalitions, you know, Palestine Solidarity, Latin America Solidarity, almost any single, every single social movement you can think of in Britain, Jeremy was there. Jeremy, he, uh, he was either on on board of the uh, uh, the organizations, or, or he was always in the protests, leading them, or uh, speaking at them, or just walking beside beside the people. Well, Dennis, I might finish off on this point, and that's what we need to remember: is there's a difference between the authority of government and power, and too many of us on the left whether we're on the right of the left or the far left or anywhere else in between, confuse the authority of government with power. And they're two different things. And what we need to ensure is that the people have power, not bank our hopes that the right person in the authority of government will fix our problems. Power is a measure of people cooperating and working with each other. And the more people who are cooperating and working with each other, the more power social movements can have to change things. And in a night when another, uh, after a night where another PM's bit in the dust, we need to remember that our main focus as social movement activists should be on building power and creating conditions for the next leader to emerge um, as a reflection of the work that we've already done. Because a good leader is like a light bulb. They're there just channeling the pre-existing energy electricity of the social movement. Well so said. Thank you, Tom, Dennis. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful having you again, Godfrey. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30 a.m. Wednesday, 6.30 a.m. Thursday, 7 a.m. Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. That was Godfrey Moss from the National Union of Workers talking about the way ahead for the union movement in the wake of Tony Abbott's demise. We will now turn our attention to the ongoing dispute between Yara Trumps and the Rail Tram and Bus Union. While the negotiations for fair wages, acceptable rosters and job security have been taking place between the union and the company, industrial action by the leadership and its members has been initiated last week. The union held a four-hour stop work meeting on September 10th in order to inform both members and public of the updates regarding negotiation as well as dispel the distortions and false information put up by the country's corporate media. Phil Altieri, the Victorian branch assistant uh, secretary, 
spoke at the internal meeting in Trades Hall. When you put things in perspective, we're talking about a huge multinational company that employs 60,000 people across the world, whose revenue base last year was $9 billion. This is the parent company. $9 billion. They made a $550 million profit last year. And when we break that down to Yarra Trams, part of this huge organisation, last year they increased their revenue by $50 million alone, just last year. 13.6% increase in revenue in one year. And you've got to ask yourselves, how does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens because you deliver it. Without you, Yarra Trams are nothing. Absolutely nothing. You are the ones that run this system, as our logo says. You are there first thing in the morning, last thing at night, on weekends, transporting the people of Melbourne about their business every day. And you deserve everything you get. When you look at the profit margins of these companies, don't tell me that they can't afford it. When you put it in perspective, when they make an $80 million profit in one year, they can afford to give you a little bit more because you deserve it. You absolutely deserve it. Now those figures, we've been trying to put them out there in the media. The media certainly has not been worker friendly, but we can't rely on the media. You know, apart from small sections of the media that try and tell the truth, but a small number of readers read those. You know, we don't want to upset the Melbourne travelling public, but when you have a company who treats us with contempt, who are belligerent, then it leaves us little choice. On two occasions, on two occasions, in good faith, we pulled our strike action on the 21st of August, if you remember there. We pulled it along with the roads. Why? Because we were in the commission two nights before, and they committed, they made a commitment in the Fair Work Commission to come to us with a better offer. So what happened when the next week came along? Yes, they put an offer on the table, and it's the same bloody offer they had before. So, now if this happened again last week, last week we've been negotiating every day. We've put in the hard yards, we've made ourselves available, even on weekends, to try and get this deal done. Because it's in everybody's interest to get this done. So what happened last week? Yes, we, we had, there was a rail stoppage. We had our stoppage on the 27th. Now strategically, last week's action was light on. We didn't do much in terms of industrial action in trans. And the reason for that is because the week before was heavy. So the message to the other trans is, you've got a week to try and get this done. Because next week being this week, there's plenty happening. We've got a four-hour stoppage, we've got an overtime ban for seven days, we've got short shunting, we've got no uniform. So the message is, you had last week to sort it out. And guess what they told us last week? We are working on a new offer. We'll put it to you, give us a bit of time, we'll put it to you on Monday, Monday of this week. So Monday turned up, we all turned up for bargaining, and what do they say? Look, we need a bit more time, we're not finished our work, we still need to do a little bit more work. Can you be patient? We'll put it to you tomorrow morning. So again, we were patient in trying to get this deal done. So turn up Tuesday morning, and lo and behold, 
we get the sign rehashed off her on the party table. That's pathetic. So twice now, twice, these people have made commitments to deliver a better offer and they just simply have not. So they cannot be trusted. As I said on radio this morning, in Australia, we mean what we say. And if we make a commitment, we stick to our commitments. So, is industrial action necessary? Yes! Do they deserve it? Yes! Absolutely. When these companies treat you with contempt, we're not going to stand for that, members. We are, will not stand for it. We will stand up and fight until we get a proper deal. We'd like to encourage listeners to stay up to date with the developments of our comrades' struggle for fair wage and fair treatment at www.rtbuvic.com.au. For the final part of our show today, we will explore the mass-scale exploitation that has been taking place in the 7-Eleven franchises throughout the country. The recent Fairfax Four Corners investigative report has revealed that up to two-thirds of its stores around Australia are ripping off workers by often paying them as little as $10 an hour. The international students and immigrant workers have been some of the most common victims of the so-called half-pay scam, under which workers are only paid half the weekly award wage they earn within a normal working week. Those and many more stories of exploitation demonstrate the relentless drive of this country's corporate giants towards maximum casualization combined with constant downward pressure on the award wages and penalty rates. Great. Joining us now is Anthony Main, the Secretary of UNITE. Anthony, welcome to Stick Together. G'day, how are you? Oh, excellent. Uh, now, uh, Anthony, you've been involved in the campaign for the rights of the 7-Eleven workers uh, previously through, um, well, and, and and in an ongoing basis, really. Uh, now, did you s- have you seen the same type and level of exploitation throughout your years as Secretary of UNITE? as has been discovered uh, recently by the Fairfax uh, Joint Report? Yeah, look, unfortunately, is we first uncovered this um, exploitation going back uh, to 2008 now, um, where we were first approached by a group of workers out in Geelong. Um, all of them were international students working for one of the franchises there in the city centre. And they came to us telling us stories that they were being paid as little as 10 or $12 an hour back then. Um, our strategy at that point in time was to recruit those workers to the union, organise their shop, um, and also campaign for um, them to be paid back pay. That um, was successful in the sense that we were able to unionise their shop. We got them on the minimum wage. Uh, we got them secure hours, permanent part-time basis, all that type of a thing, and that resulted in a huge pay rise. Um, unfortunately, though, 7-Eleven head office chose to intervene um, shut down that shop, or actually what they did was remove the franchisee, sacked all the workers, and obviously that set our campaign for unionisation back a little bit. We didn't leave it there, though. We continued to campaign for those workers' back pay and put some pressure on the Fair Work Ombudsman to, um, to, to, to basically take that franchisee to court. Unfortunately, we were successful, but the, the franchisee liquidated the business, shut it down, and obviously that those workers, despite winning the, the case legally, were unable to be paid. Um, but that said, we pointed out to 7-Eleven head office back then, we pointed out to the Fair Work Ombudsman back then, that this was an issue, a huge issue, 
fundamentally a half pay scam where you know the books were being cooked and um, 7-Eleven office were, were actually in on it. Um, unfortunately, the Fair Work Ombudsman back then and basically continuing to now has been turning a blind eye to it and um, without a union being able to be successful in making a breakthrough in 7-Eleven, Unfortunately, that, that level of exploitation has, has been continuing. So obviously, the Fair Work Ombudsman was pressured in some ways to um, you know, launch some investigations over the, between 2008 and now, and that has resulted in some back pay being recovered, I think probably in the order of about $300,000 mm-hmm. that we've been um, privy to. But again, as we say, it's the tip of the iceberg. We're talking about tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of stolen wages here. Mm, absolutely. And um, what what has been the core of uh, Unite's strategy towards unionizing the 7-Eleven workers? Is it in any way similar to uh, uh, Unite the Union in New Zealand or the McDonald's workers um, uh, organization in, U- in the US? Yeah, look, I mean, it has been uh, similar in, in one sense. Obviously, it hasn't been as successful. But um, one of the issues, the main issues that we've been facing or the hurdles that we've been struggling to overcome is in 7-Eleven in particular is the fact that the vast bulk of these workers are international students mm-hmm. and they are held over a barrel basically via their visa conditions which dictate that they can only work 20 hours a week. Now that is a tool that employers are using. 7-Eleven is a prime example. Um, as I say, to hold people over a barrel they are offered low wages off the bat. They're, they're inadvertently forced under duress to breach those 20 hours, sometimes only by one or two hours a week. And then when they complain, the boss says, well, keep complaining and I'll dub you into immigration. So there's a there's basically a mechanism there whereby they hold people at bay and um, they continue to pay low wages and keep, force people to keep their mouths shut. So part of what we've been doing, you know, on top of trying to organise people in their workplaces, connect with international students on campus, mm-hmm. um, is trying to campaign for some political change. I mean, we think that these laws in regards to uh, in regards to international students and that 20-hour work rule mm-hmm. um, need, to be, need to be reformed. We think that 20-hour rule should be abolished. Mm-hmm. And in the immediate term, we're calling for an amnesty for all 7-Eleven workers in the first instance so that they can come forward and the full extent of this... Um, wage theft can be uncovered. Unless that's done, people are going to be reluctant to come forward, even though the expose has been widespread and all the rest of it. Unless people are given some assurances that they won't be dobbed in to immigration, you will see people um, continue to, to, to be held at bay. Mm. And um, there've also been um, also been some efforts within the, some sections of the uh, shop distributive and allied employers uh, union to fight for the fair conditions uh, among you, young people, some of those sections are called uh, Transform SDA. Uh, so, what, what do you think our approach should be in in that sense? In the case, in that in that case, look, uh, I'll be totally honest with you. I don't have a great deal of um, respect for the for the SDA as a union. Mm. I mean, I think definitely that's a union that needs to be reformed top to bottom. I mean, really, you you could have an argument about whether we should even describe it as a union. I mean, it's a yellow union, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, an organisation that's, you know, been around for a long, long time and never, ever made any attempt to organise 7-Eleven workers. I mean, this is a company with around 4,000 workers, but because the franchise model doesn't suit their sort of business model of, of trade unionism, where they do cosy deals with the big retail chains in order to, well, in exchange for, you know, passive membership lists and 
um, assistance in recruiting members, um, they've ignored this and they've known about this, as have, unfortunately, the vast bulk of the rest of the trade union movement for at least since 2008. Um, and we would have hoped that we got more support in order to take up this issue back then, but unfortunately it wasn't forthcoming. It's good now that a lot more people are involved. Mm-hmm. It's a shame it's, a, it's in, a, in a bit more of an opportunist way. But um, the only way that we're going to move forward and you know, stop this type of um, you know, wage theft and super exploitation is to build a regime mm. in 7-Eleven stores and to build a strong union presence. And that's the sort of the project of Unite. Absolutely. And um, hopefully that, you know, by doing that, we can have some impact on you know, setting an example for people inside the SDA as well. Mm-hmm. And we would encourage them to fight for you know, a more more militant strategy in a democratic union inside the SDA. Absolutely. And uh, certainly 7-Eleven is certainly, as you said, it's a mega mega franchise, but it obviously has been relieved, it's been revealed that it has some obvious uh, weaknesses and uh, flaws. So uh, what, do, uh, what do you think are some of the exact strategies that uh, sort of win the union movement, not just in Unite, not just in SDA, but us together in the union, union movement uh, should be doing? Um uh, you know, with this new with this new discovery on our hands. Well, look, as I say, I think the main task is to build a a presence and to organise the workers in the stores. That's going to be the number one yep. um, thing that the union movement needs to do. But side by side with that, I think that there needs to be campaigns for political change. As I said mm-hmm. earlier, you know, changes to the to the working restrictions, um, or the abolishment of work restrictions, basically for international students. But also, well, it's probably worth looking at legislation to um, ensure or try and force um, the franchisors, like 7-Eleven Head Office, for example, to be responsible for um, the wage theft that's taken place. As you say, the model that they've got in place uh, pretty much encourages franchisees to, um, you know, to, to reduce wages and, and conditions, and um, that should be stopped if we had laws in place that made the franchisors responsible. That would be a, a disincentive on that front. But, I mean, you know, basically we've got a problem on our hands where... Both the major parties support the, the 20-hour rule. Mm-hmm. Neither of the major parties seem uh, intent on, you know, looking at this situation in a, in a serious way. So I think mm-hmm. it's a matter, uh, as um, is the case on many other fronts, that the union movement needs to be looking to build a political alternative outside of the major parties, um, you know, looking to come in and build a movement that unashamedly stands for workers' rights. And what I mean by that is not just local workers' rights, but any, any worker that comes in this, into this country... Uh, you know, we need to make sure that they are not exploited and, and ripped off. Absolutely. Well, uh, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us um, today. And we wish you be- best of luck in, um, in helping to organize uh, 7-11 workers. And, uh, no worries. Thanks so much for your time. Um, all the best. You're listening to 3CR Stick Together on Community Radio Network. And that was Anthony Main from Unite wrapping up our show today. We'd like to inform our listeners that on Wednesday, September 23rd, 12 p.m., there will be a rally at the Victorian State Parliament to save our weekend penalty rates. This was called and promoted by United Voice. That's Wednesday, September 23rd, 12 p.m., Victorian State Parliament. That will be all for this week's Stick Together show. I'm Dennis Rogatuk, and I'd like to once again thank our two special guests, Godfrey and Anthony, for appearing on the show. Thanks to the Community Broadcasting Federation for its financial support of the program. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you tune in same time next week. 